You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Well, hello, everyone. Here we are with episode four in season two of the Together in Literacy podcast. I'm here with Casey. Hi, Casey. Hi, Emily. Hi, everyone. And we have a great episode for you today. We had so much to say that we're going to I break it up into a little mini series. We'll talk about that in uh, just a minute here. Before we do, we just want to thank all our listeners for the ratings and the reviews on our podcast. It really just warms our heart to read all of your wonderful feedback. Uh, we have one from one of our uh, previous guests, Cindy Hall, and she had said, I can't recommend this podcast highly enough. I often listen to an episode several times because there is so much good stuff included. Somehow the conversational tone of the podcast gives a different experience to getting information than reading articles or attending trainings. It's more like listening to valued colleagues having a conversation about topics that really interest you. Well, Cindy, we are so, so grateful for that review and really, really appreciate your support. If you haven't listened to the episode with Cindy Hall, that was episode three of season two. Cindy gave us some great tips about homework and organization and, and so forth. And I really feel like this episode, episode four, is a good segue into what we were just discussing in the topic of homework in episode three. Today, we're going to be talking about a something that is really, really on our hearts. Not only that, it's a topic that we get asked about a lot. We get people really requesting us to talk about how to work with the older student who is challenged by reading and writing. So our older students with dyslexia, how can we work with them uh, effectively, give them what they need, but also to honor where they are at in their learning journey. So we are going to dig into talking about our own experiences with working with older students. And Casey and I really have the gift of being able to work with children 
in multiple grades and multiple ages. That's really the beauty of Orton-Gillingham is that it works for so many different ages, grades. I uh, recall watching a video of someone in their 70s learning how to read with Orton-Gillingham. Mm -hmm. That was very inspirational to me. So we really want to share our perspective and give you some tips for things to, to really look for. We also want to honor our mission of the Together in Literacy podcast, which is not only spreading dyslexia awareness, talking about structured literacy, science of reading, Orton-Gillingham, but how that all fits in with the social emotional well-being of our children. So looking at the whole child as we are thinking about uh, their, also their academic needs. So we will be really having a nice discussion about uh, what we notice with middle schoolers uh, from a social emotional standpoint and what they really do benefit from having, not just middle schoolers, we know, just older, older students, what they benefit from having when they are with us. All right, Casey, I'm going to kick this off. I am. Yes. And I, I like how Cindy said it's kind of like a conversation because I feel like, I feel like it's, it's a little, a little bit, bit of a coffee chat here that you guys get a little bit of an insight into with um, with us. So thank you for joining us. When this question kind of came up and this topic came up about addressing the older student, I think that this is something that as more schools and educators are moving into the research and, and really trying to root their instruction in what the science says about how we learn to read we know that that early intervention is key. And so a lot of our focus really is on beginning readers in which would be typically in our kindergarten, first and second grade classrooms. And we have a lot of conversations surrounding that, which is powerful and needed and where we have a lot of our focus. What then comes into play is, you know, we know that there are students that either fly under the radar or were tagged as not performing well, but then, you know, kind of continued through the grades. And so we have students who are in upper elementary school, middle school, high school that really do need support still. And oftentimes what we hear is that, well, they're doing okay, or I don't know if they need all those accommodations. They seem to be doing fine. And so those are comments that sometimes we hear when, once a student has either, you know, broken the code or is perhaps older when being identified with dyslexia, because they have developed a lot of excellent coping skills, you know, perhaps they're getting good grades or they already have accommodations or IEPs in place. And so I think we have to be very mindful that those successes that they may have, or even those interventions that they're being provided with, perhaps don't tell the whole story of the child. Because for our older students, especially, I think it's important for us to remember that while their struggle may not always be visible to us, that they are students with dyslexia often have feelings of anxiousness that are surrounding their reading and writing abilities, and they may engage in a lot of negative self-talk. So I, where I see this in my private practice is that my older students tend to have more of an impact on their social well-being, their social and emotional well-being, and that seems to be heightened as they become older. 
until they begin to understand themselves as learners and, and start to understand what dyslexia means for them. Do you see some of those same things, Emily? With yes. Students? And, and I think what happens is that there has been at this point, when we're talking about the older student, the negative self-talk has been hanging around for a few years. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a little more compounded. And then we start to see it really affecting their relationships with others. Yeah. And because if they're not feeling good about themselves, how can they show that outwardly towards someone else? That's when we really start to see the behavior. But what I noticed with some of my older students, the anxiety yeah. really becomes more prominent. The mm -hmm. other thing that I've noticed, the physical things like headaches, a big one, just tired. We try to think about our older students who uh, not only are juggling all of these things with dyslexia, but also perhaps going through puberty at the same time. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a lot going on. And I think we yeah. just really need to be so, so careful with that particular stage in their development. And of course, and I was saying this to Casey earlier, throwing in the negative effects of social media and really doesn't help things very much at all with having kids on devices and going on different social media platforms and and sharing you know things like that the thing that I also notice and I see this pretty early on but even as students get older they really start to get into these are our kids with dyslexia their zone of genius like yeah. they find their little niche in one particular area and they will sort of like hyper focus or really grab onto that one thing that they are a total expert at. Like yeah. uh, one person that I had worked with uh, for several years, just really grabbed onto the fact that they were working with animals and knew a lot about animal, be animal behaviors and things like that. And so that was their zone of genius, just being able to share you know, a wide range <laughs> of facts and wowing everybody with them. Um, really part of their survival, mm -hmm. getting into that zone of genius. And we know if, as we study famous people with dyslexia who may have really become quite successful, it's because they found what they really, really were passionate about that they just sort of continued to read on that one topic and it was very yeah. comfortable to them. So they just became like experts. Yeah. So we have like these little tiny experts that are growing, which is wonderful because you know what? any zone of genius right now or anything these kids are passionate about, yes, it could turn into something fantastic for them down the road. So we don't really want to see that really as a negative thing, but it, it can be seen as a strength. Absolutely. And I think that that's an important thing to point out, right? We want our students to identify those areas that they enjoy and that they feel really successful at, um, and then try to find ways to bridge that into the work that that perhaps we need to do for school. <laughs> right, exactly. How do we harness that? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Some other things that, that we tend to notice, and I think this is for, for most middle school and high school students as, as we're engaging in passing over that graduate release or responsibility for more of those executive function skills is the organization. Um, but mm -hmm. organization for our students can be particularly challenging, especially if they have a comorbidity of attention deficit disorder with dyslexia. So 
finding those strategies to really help them organize their materials, make sure they get things turned in. It kills me when my older students will have completed an assignment and then somewhere between completing the assignment and getting it turned in, it disappears or they forget to, you know, submit it on Google Docs or, or however they're doing it. So really just providing the support for our students. And, and that I've noticed is something that I definitely weave into my lessons with my older students, because it is such an important piece for them. Right. Not really. It's just so important. That's why, you know, having color coding systems, mm-hmm. checklists and things like that are just so, so helpful for kids. And, and, you know, maybe we do a lot of that when kids are younger, but our older students really, really need and benefit from that as well. Even more because they may be switching classes, have multiple teachers. There's a lot to manage. Yes. Uh, that would be a lot to manage personally, even as an adult. Yeah. If I went back to high school, Casey, yeah. <laughs> I would really benefit from having all of those <laughs> organizational tips. Yeah. Uh, so we're just sort of sharing the things that we notice as our real big needs for our older students. We notice that they will fly under the radar for reading, mm-hmm. right? So they uh, don't want to read aloud, but they may have uh, quite a few avoidance behaviors, but they have also developed what we call compensatory habits. So the pictures have gone away. That is no longer something that they could rely on if they were told at some point to uh, rely on pictures, which they should not have been. But unfortunately, that is still happening. And they just really don't have any decoding strategies. And so as a result, then their oral reading fluency is very poor. And then they don't see reading as enjoyable and may not not only see reading in school uh, as laborious, but also really don't have any interest in reading for pleasure. So those are those avoidance behaviors. I can't stress this enough that compensatory habits are super hard to break. Casey and I, whenever we have a new student really have to, and you'll hear this from like every Orton Gillingham teacher out there, it takes a heck of a long time to break compensatory habits in reading. when kids are just sort of like guessing, grasping for straws, to be frank, when they're stuck on a word because they don't have really solid strategies that were explicitly taught to them and modeled and, and nurtured. So when we get these older students that cannot handle the sheer volume of content area reading when they're switching classes, this is a really, really tough time for them. I also think, you know, to piggyback on that, when, when our students have created these habits that they have, they consider to be successful or have helped them, right? They're now in middle school, in high school, in college, and they've, they've used these strategies and they will swear up and down that they're helping them where you can sit back and see that perhaps there's a better way, a more effective way for us to approach, you know, our reading task or our writing task. 
really getting the child to understand that is, and and having that as part of the buy-in is necessary. So, you know, again, coming back to those metacognitive strategies and that reflective piece with our older students, I think is so important because they need to have the buy-in. They need to be understanding why you're challenging what they've always done and why you're asking them to try it in a different way. Um, And sometimes they're like, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, you know, we we have to have some conversations with them about why it is that we're doing that, you know, and, and really explain to them what it is that's needed and, and all of those things. So, you know, working with older students, I, I love working with older students, but what we have to keep in mind is that oftentimes our older students have more complex learning profiles just because they have continued on this path of either struggling or just getting by or not fully breaking the code. So they are working so hard. And because of that, they have these different gaps. It's almost like Swiss cheese. And you, as a, as a therapist or practitioner, you have to know where those gaps are and how to fill them in a way that really honors their age and honors their journey you know, we don't want to take, if they have a weakness in phonology, we're not going to take something that we would have used with the kindergarten student and put that in front of a middle school or a high school student. That's not okay. So we would, you know, we have to be very mindful in how we're planning and how we're addressing their gaps as we look at their, their learning profile. Yeah. And we'll get into buy-in a little bit more, but I can't stress enough the importance of if you're going to really develop a relation, a good working relationship mm-hmm. with older students, then yeah, buy-in is really, really important. It is. Yep. Right. It's important for teachers. It's important for our older students. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So we're going to get into the part two of this discussion. So we first uh, kicked things off with talking about the big needs for our older students and the things that are really stand out from a social emotional standpoint. But now we're going to be talking about what's important to remember when you're working with older students. So we have a couple of points we're going to discuss here and then we'll go a little more deeply into how we meet those needs. So uh, it's really important to, as Casey was mentioning earlier, recognize that some of these kids at this point are as what we sort of lovingly refer to as like Swiss cheese kids, because there are these little holes in in gaps in their education or in their foundation that we have to uh, seek out, find them, and fill them in in order to help them progress further. So what we have to do is figure out where those areas of need are. But in addition to that, we also want to find their areas of strength. Mm -hmm. So they may have really, really strong verbal reasoning. They may be able to have very interesting conversations with you. Like we said before, they may have very passionate discussions about certain topics of interest to them. But there is a fine balance between finding their areas of need and also recognizing and honoring that yes, this child not only may be struggling, maybe in their decoding ability, they also have great ideas. How can we help them compose them and get them onto paper? So that was the first one. Yeah. And I think that is such an important piece and really is the foundation of working with our older students. And 
in addition to that, right? Honoring their age. And part of honoring their age is, of course, the resources that we put in front of our students, right? We, we need to be mindful of that. But also, as I had said previously, right, bringing in that metacognitive piece, bringing in that, that time for reflection within your lessons. I feel that th that is such an important piece for our older students because they need to be part of that learning process. They need to be communicating what's working, what perhaps isn't working. When I'm working with my older students, I do this with my younger students as well, but especially my older students, you know, I will, will try a strategy or, or a way of teaching something. And I always tell them like, if it doesn't make sense to you, let me know, because I have other ways that I can, I have other strategies that we can use. So by then really, we need the kids to be able to understand what's working, be reflective, change that strategy up if it's needed to meet the needs of that student and then try again because they need to be part of that learning process. Right. And Casey brings up a good point about keeping them aware of the learning process. And, and we had discussed, I believe this was in our episode on accommodations right. on how we communicate that they have a toolkit with tools mm -hmm. in them. And there may be different tools for needed for different purposes. And so just continuing with that discussion and analogy of how we have a, like a learning toolkit, I think, especially with older students, and this works for younger students too, but just, so once again, we're bringing them back to the why, but yeah. helping raise awareness of what, like, this isn't working for me. Let me, we can try it this way instead. Mm -hmm. And that ability to offer choice, I guess, is my point, is just extremely powerful with these kids, especially the ones who really are resistant to wanting to do it your way. No, I've always done it this way. <laughs> you know, and so when we when they feel that little sense of autonomy, like they're able to make that choice, then uh, that really is just once again so respectful of where they're at, giving them dignity as well. I think. When, when students are hanging on so tightly to something that they've used forever, I completely understand as adults, we do that too. If someone changes something else, we're like, wait, no, that's not, that doesn't feel comfortable to me. So yeah. recognizing that and being there and not, I never take it personally. If a student's like, no, I don't want to do it that way, you know, and that then becomes those conversations and talking about why we're going to be doing it and really bringing them into the learning process, because I completely understand, you know, they've even written books, like don't move my cheese, right? Like nobody <laughs> likes to have their stuff, you know, that they think is working messed with. Right. So we want to make sure that in terms of that executive function piece, that we're really understanding how we're helping that older student with task completion from the very beginning with actually understanding what that task entails, whether that's a checklist and then helping them sort of time manage out. They are really, really going to need that support. Casey and I were having this discussion that sometimes our teachers who work with the older student may get into the like, these kids should know how to do this by now. And I get that. You know, they, they should have figured out how to jot down a homework assignment by now or organize their planner or you know, map out what they need to do to, to complete a project. Some kids truly still aren't quite sure how to tackle that. And when faced with a large research paper or project of some kind, really 
just have no idea where to begin and feel very overwhelmed and kind of may shut down as a result. So it really, we want to be respectful of that there are children who do truly have some executive function issues that will carry on into the older grades and they need different kinds of accommodations. They may need a, like a certain kind of a syllabus. Mm-hmm. If you're a uh, teacher that works with older students, they may need to preview vocabulary with you a little bit more before you get into that lesson. Uh, whatever presentation you're doing that day in class, just, just a few things. That's exactly what I was going to say is that really that comes back to then those accommodations and just being mindful of what ones they need. And then really being observant. If you're noticing that, you know, oh my gosh, they never get the homework written down into their planner or they're missing their homework every day. Are they able to actually get it from the board into their planner or, you know, where is the breakdown happening? And so that just kind of brings in, you know, that being um, observant and, and having a chat with the child about where, where they're noticing the breakdown as well. And and we get it. My husband teaches middle school. He's got like over a hundred students. So we get it. Like, you know, we get classes sometimes of, a, of well over 30 kids. So it's a challenge and we are definitely aware of that. And so we do need a bit of a team approach, particularly when it comes to someone that needs a bit more help with organization or anything with executive function. Yeah. And I I've seen some middle schools that do a really great job with that middle schools and high schools where they have kind of that team approach or where, you know, the student will have a certain teacher to check in with. So teachers do a great job with all of that. And, and I think, you know, sometimes it's easy for us as educators and I do the same thing to kind of get stuck in my own little bubble, my own room, what I'm doing. And now that I'm outside of the school setting and I'm working in a place where I can see across the grades, you know, from pre-K through college, I can really see how each one connects to the other, where when I was just in my classroom, perhaps, you know, I was just really hyper-focused on what I was doing. I didn't always see how that alignment or how what I did impacted the next year and so forth. So one thing that I did was at the end of the year and this is just me, but I, I would go to the, to the grade above me and say, okay, give me three things that, that my kids came in to you doing really well. And three things that if you could have me do differently, what would they be? Um, Love it. You have to be, you have to be willing to be really vulnerable to do that. But, but I, I like that because that really let me know what their expectations were and what I was doing well. And then perhaps something that I could lean into and, and maybe change based on, on what I felt that you know, it's appropriate in alignment. So Casey, that's so those longitudinal conversations are just so, so helpful. That's another reason I really love the building models where it's not just a three through five building or a K to two building. You're just not able to have those conversations with the teachers as the kids go and and move on to that. But that's, that's a whole other conversation I could get on my soapbox about. (laughs) I know. And I wish wish time was built into the day or into the system for teachers to have that, that valuable time to have those conversations. I know that's not always the case. So, okay, Casey. So our, we have our next section here. Yeah, and, and we've kind of touched on these a little bit, but we really wanted to highlight, we know that when we're working with older students, honoring their age is so important, but also meeting their needs. And I think that is one of the both beauties and challenges of working with older students, right? Because you want to make sure that you are closing the gap, that we Mm -hmm. are really working on 
addressing their specific needs, improving, right? As we close the gap between what they're able to read independently and where their vocabulary is and where what the um, expectations are for their grade level, right? That's our goal to always be closing that gap. But to do that in a way that really is mindful of their age, their development, and where they are socially. Because as I had said previously, right, if we have a student who has phonological deficits, and yes, some of our older children do still struggle with that. And we see it maybe more in like their language where they will, if we have words with minimal pairs, they will switch them out or they'll have, you know, incorrect meanings associated with with words and they're not able to pronounce them correctly. But being mindful of the resources that we're using. So, you know, coming back to that phonology, we could still use phonology with them, but I'm not going to do it in the same way or with the same materials that I'm going to do with my younger students. So being mindful of that, I think also remembering that older kids like to to use, to play games and to have hands-on materials too. Yeah. <laughs> so it's okay to bring those into your lessons with your older students. It doesn't all have to be paper and pencil work. They're, they really do like having the hands-on um, experiences as well. Right. And I've found with the older students, they still really love card games or even dice games, yeah. uh, things like that. And it doesn't have to be ones that maybe have like a winner or a loser. I love a little healthy competition in there. But yes, as Casey said, our older students still really love playing games. And that is going to be one of the ways that you are going to be able to hook those kids in. Yeah. Um, it can be just something you weave into your lesson. Like at this point, okay, we're going we're gonna to play this card game. It can still be something as simple as a game of concentration where they may be making matches. Kids with dyslexia really benefit from playing games of concentration because of their working memory issues. So we can, so it doesn't have to be, you know, anything crazy there, but they still do enjoy having a choice menu of some kind, but Mm -hmm. also finding card games that really they enjoy or a dice game. And of course, and as Casey said, but we, we do want to be, do honor where they are at in their development and to really be careful about the resources that we are using with them, because as we all know, they don't want them to be um, marking them as babyish and we get that. So there are ways to work around that. And Casey and I will get into that, you know, some of the ideas that we have, we've been planning that out for future episodes for engaging activities with our older students. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going to sort of switch gears a little further and talk about when we're working with our older students, what are some things that we feel like they need, but also before that with laying a little bit of a foundation and Casey referenced this a little bit earlier, and that's getting students or older students to buy into the why. Mm -hmm. And so when we do that, one of the ways is to discuss the brain. And uh, we discussed this uh, in detail in season one, episode three on metacognition, but having kids be, you know, understanding the way their brain works really helps them realize I need this because of, because then I will be able to do this 
or when my brain is using this part, then I'll be able to do this. So we can talk about in kid-friendly language, the different parts of the brain with them, um, what their functions are, you know, what they um, do, things like that. Casey and I have used the brain hat. We referenced that in season one, episode three, you may have a poster that you refer to, anything that sort of brings in that conversation and not just one time, but multiple times so that it becomes just the easy flow. Mm-hmm. And once again, we're just building in that buy-in and, and connection building. Yeah. And I think with older students, it provides you the opportunity to really have real conversations with them about, well, how can I help you? What are you noticing is something that's, that's a little bit of a challenge at school. Like, what are some things that you notice and getting them to explain that to you? And then that's when you can really go into, okay, so I have some strategies we can try for this and we're going to, we're going to do this. And so it's, it's getting them to have that awareness of why they're there. Our kids are smart. They know that they are maybe not on par with their peers for writing, for reading. And I think that our kids are also really curious. And so bringing their brain in to our conversations can really engage them in and pique that curiosity as to, okay, this is why. And it really leads us very beautifully into conversations about dyslexia and what that actually means and how, what are the strengths and what are the areas that are perhaps challenges. And so it just really opens the door for these beautiful conversations that then lead to the self-awareness and that self-advocacy, which is another piece that we didn't um, really include here, but is such an important part for our older students because when they, you know, we're not always going to be at their meetings or, or with them and they have to learn how to advocate because dyslexia is lifelong and those accommodations can be used in the workplace. Right. Casey brings up a good point about self-advocacy and helping students in that way. And, and we refer that if you check back in the episode, episode three, season two, where we had uh, Cindy Hall with us, we really want to just address and support the idea that dyslexia is not something that we hide. It is an open conversation. So if you have a young kiddo with dyslexia and you're listening to this now, it's a good idea to have open conversations about dyslexia, what it is, call it what it is. And there are a lot, there are a number of wonderful picture books where you can do that to facilitate mm-hmm. conversation. But once our children really understand that, yes, I have something, I have a learning challenge, I have a learning difference, it's called dyslexia. These are some of the tools that I need. This is how I learn best. That is powerful self advocacy. So we never want to feel like this is something that should be like hidden somewhere and never addressed or talked about. And, and if you haven't had an opportunity to yet in season one, Mm -hmm. we have a former student who is now in college and it's the title is hope's journey. And she so eloquently shares her journey and her experiences. And she really speaks to a lot of this. And she's coming from the perspective of someone who was diagnosed and, and what it was that she observed as she went through middle school and high school and now college. So if you haven't had an opportunity to check that out, I do encourage you to do so just to get some insight from 
a student who is in these upper grades. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up that interview with Hope. Yes, she really, and you can see what Hope was really passionate about when you listened to her. That was a wonderful interview. Love that one. So appreciate Hope coming on for that. So we're going to get a little more deeper into what our older students' needs are from an academic perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've really gone into the social emotional side, I think, quite a bit. But let's talk a little bit more about the academic side. So when Gazy and I were organizing and creating our talking points for this episode, we were like, oh my goodness, we have so much to say. Um, we really do need to put this into more than one episode. Mm-hmm. So we had got into what students need from the academic perspective. And then we created this big long list of teaching tips for all of you. We're like, wow, that's a lot. This episode could end up being like two hours long. Yeah. So why don't we break this up a little bit for people so that you can listen, digest, and then come back. So we are going to get into the meat of more of the teaching tips regarding phonology, morphology, vocabulary. And we are going to even dig further into the writing aspects. So stay with us on that. We we are committed to providing this information for you because we know our listeners really have been asking for it. Okay. So when we are talking about the strategies that things that we should be uh, mindful of that should be included in our lessons, what do older students still need? We still should be connecting to that formula, the simple view of reading and recognize that when our students have poor word recognition, that that is affecting their automaticity, their oral reading fluency, then that is also going to impact their overall reading comprehension and their reading ability as a whole. Let's keep in mind that, you know, linking back to some of those compensatory habits, Mm -hmm. you may have one of these little savvy compensatory habit kids that may have memorized a whole slew of words and kind of just slipped right under that radar for quite a long time. That can't hold on for very long. One of the things that I see happen with older students, particularly those who have high vocabulary, is when they are reading, they are so bright that they will substitute words that they don't know for a word that they think perhaps fits in with what they think the content is about. And because they have such high language and most of them have really high background knowledge, it makes sense. So if you were just listening to them reading without having your eyes on the text, you'd be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But when you're looking at it and you see that the error actually alters the deeper understanding of the text, that's where our kids really have a hard time. Our students are often very good at getting the gist of a story, but when we get into the upper grades and we'll talk more about this when we do the writing episode, they really need to pull out the information, those details and those inferences and all those literary elements. And they often will miss those because they are substituting words or they're in their mind. They are associating a word's meaning with another word's meaning, like one that has a similar, like a minimal pair where it's just off by just a few letters. So I think because we don't have older students read out loud, oftentimes we won't pick up on where they're making those errors. So when we're working with students in a one-on-one setting or a small group setting, we're working with those older students, we can have them 
read out loud to us, at least in progress monitoring pieces to really check in where those errors are occurring, because a lot of our kids will, will kind of fly under the radar in regards to that. And so to piggyback on that, then, you know, a lot of our kids really do need word attack strategies there, as Emily was saying, you know, if they're missing that word recognition to automaticity piece, then word attack strategies really do need to be taught. Our older students may struggle with this either because a lack of syllable knowledge or how to divide. And when we're thinking about that, we want, we also know that older students, we, they need to be flexible with understanding where those syllables divide. And and this comes into bringing in that morphology piece. And it, it really does become much more not complex, but there's a lot more that we have to bring in when we're working with our older students. Absolutely. You know, one little powerful assessment that you can, you may want to give is a closed passage. Mm-hmm. And that can be very revealing with older students. So that's something you can really think about to see what they're putting into those blanks. I have closed passages that I sometimes use that have a word bank with them when we're working on a particular focus, but if a closed passage where they just have to put in a word that would make sense, that can really be revealing of their word recognition skills as well. Not yeah. only that, and their reading comprehension. And then uh, Dibbles and um, yeah. Cadence, they have those maze. Exactly. Or the days. Yeah, days. the day. Like, yeah, it's like D-A-Z-E. Yeah, the days. Yeah. That you can that you can use to, to work on those pieces too. Yeah. yeah, those are, those are really, really helpful assessments mm-hmm. to use. And they've expanded um, to the older grades as well. They I do. The yep. grade now, so yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, when we were talking about word attack strategies, Casey mentioned that our students, when we are working with older students, there's a balance between because you have some kids who really have still have weak phonological awareness or just foundational reading skills but then you might have some other students who are really older but are ready for more morphology instruction or advanced concepts so there's just it it can be difficult especially for someone working maybe in small groups with these kids to find out what exactly they need and Mm -hmm. just taking you back just to remember, we do need to still find those gaps and areas that need to be addressed in their foundational skills in order to move them forward. We also want to be mentioning that our kids need to be, learn how to be flexible that with the different ways to break words apart, whether it be by syllable or by morpheme, Mm -hmm. we are going to get into that into the next episode, but all of those things with word attack are going to be so, so important. So we want to spend a little more time talking about the specific things that you can be doing with helping your children with word attack. Mm -hmm. And we're not just talking here about like, you know, vocabulary and context clues, which we know was like kind of the the majority of things that middle and high school students, I mean, teachers may be focusing on these kids with dyslexia are going to need more, much more than learning vocabulary words and things like that. They they need really explicit strategies, whether it be working with syllable types, moving on to spelling generalizations, and then moving on to suffixing rules. So they really own uh, those generalizations and and rules and so forth so that uh, they can use them in their writing. 
because there's so much more of a writing demand for these older kids. Yeah. You know, I think when working with older students too, while we put into place these accommodations and I, I, that's where I see like this big shift where we're working a lot on accommodations and yes, we definitely want to have those in place and we want students to know how to use those, but we can't forget that we have to be closing the gap as well. And that there really is this sense of urgency to do that because it's just continues to widen. And when we look at, you know, the IDA, the international dyslexia associations definition of dyslexia, and it talks about those secondary consequences, right? That is where I feel that I see that widening the most is with our older students because they just continue to fall further behind. And so we have to have this sense of urgency to close the gap. Yeah, we can't stress that enough, those secondary impacts and those consequences that come out are like way more apparent as the older our kids get. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget that the work we're doing with our kids with dyslexia really is life-saving. And let's always keep that in mind. We are really, really trying to help them through their entire journey of, of school help them become more successful and uh, things are going to change and have to evolve as they get older so when we get into the second part of this discussion we will once again go into the the tips the teaching tips for phonology and morphology and vocabulary and (laughs) and things like that I know I wish Um, you could see the list there's like Oh gosh, it's really bullish here. So we we wanted, yeah, we wanted to really not glaze over or rush through Mm -hmm. the teaching tips that we have for you. But we do have a short list of some resources, and we'll be talking about these resources a little bit more in next next episodes. But like some of the decodables that you can be using with older students. Yes, your older students still going to need some decodables. They don't want to babyish. So we've got a high noon, which is awesome. For your high schoolers, you may want to check out a publishing company called Saddleback Publishing. They'll have more content that is more age appropriate for your older kiddos. Just something to think about. There are definitely decodables for older students. For your upper elementary, I still love, and I find the stories super interesting, simple words, chapter books. My students love Six Days at Camp over the summer. A few of mine read those and just couldn't get enough of them. So that's another one. Um, So Casey, I've mentioned three different publishers they can check out for decodables with older students. I'm missing probably, but those are some that come to we, mind. We have a whole episode on decodable books. And I know we yeah. talked about books that we can use with our older students. So that would be a good one. I know that there's a, a downloadable PDF that we included in that episode as well. So that would be a fantastic. Good out. Yeah. The other thing, you know, I think we can be mindful of is when we're working with older students and we're, we've really analyzed where their gaps are. We could also drop down in grade level text so that they're using text that they can still access. Does that make sense? So it doesn't always, it's decodable in terms of that they have covered those phonics skills, those sound symbol relationship skills. So um, kind of being aware that that's always an option as well, depending on the level of your student. Yeah. I think it's important to note that there are decodables that will focus on like 
a very specific concept. Mm -hmm. But then you have these other decodables that I refer to as cumulative that culminate a progression of skills that they have solidified in a thoughtful way. So if your older students have tackled the closed syllable and digraphs and blends and some simple VCE and still want a decodable that is meaty and interesting, sure, you could look into a lot from simple words chapter books or high mm-hmm. noon. And the other one I want to bring up, but once again, we'll uh, reference back to that decodable episode is phonic books. They have yeah. a lot of decodables for older students as well. They do. And we want to get our students to use statistical learning where they are taking the knowledge that they have and applying it to new words that they, that they haven't necessarily seen. So they're transferring that knowledge. That's our whole goal, right? We don't want to live in decodable books forever, but that's their, their stepping stones to get us to reading grade level text. So yeah, and we'll always be remembering that these are our, these are our confidence builders too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if there are kids that don't enjoy reading, but really feel that sense of satisfaction and confidence while they're reading these books. Yes. We don't want to pull those away just yet. We want to get them reading successfully and gradually move into uh, literature. Okay. We've got a couple of programs that we like. We've got uh, rewards, the rewards mm-hmm. program by Anita Archer. So that's one you may want to check out that's appropriate for for your older students. And another one we like for talking about syllabication, also we're dealing with like unaccented syllables and stress syllables is uh, mega words. And those are by levels. You can look at those. And then Casey's going to talk a little bit about take flight, Casey. Well, yeah. So, I mean, we have different programs that we can use that are Orton-Gillingham based. And so remember, Orton-Gillingham is an approach and not a program. And so when we're Mm -hmm. looking at these, there are programs that are kind of designed for some of our older students. And so Take Flight is one of those where it's really designed for second grade and up. So if you are, you know, a parent looking at services, or if you're a practitioner, you're kind of wanting to see different things that are out there. There are a lot of different programs. So kind of look and see which ones are going to best fit the needs of your students, which ones require specialized training, um, like Take Flight does, and then really kind of look and see which ones are rooted in the Orton-Gillingham approach. So there's there's certainly quite a few out there that you can can look at. I know that you can look on different websites. Um, now I've forgotten the name of it. The Alliance, uh, Multisensory Instruction Alliance, where it has like the Orton-Gillingham, Wilson, Take Flight, Alta, things like that. So, Yeah. And the other thing is, if you're looking at different Orton-Gillingham based programs, be aware that pacing may vary. And for some of your kids that really may struggle with issues with working memory, then some programs may be paced too quickly for them to really have enough time to have enough repetitions built in there. So just be aware that that can sometimes be the case. So those were some of the resources that we thought we can talk a little bit more about those in future episodes. So coming up, we'll be once again, digging into our word attack strategies and then writing. And we even were thinking that we would get into some game activities for older students. So definitely let us know if you'd be interested in learning more about those topics. We'd love to hear from you. So we'll wrap up now. We hope this has really been a helpful conversation talking about the older student, what they need from a social emotional perspective, but also thinking about their academic needs. 
we have a question that we're going to transition into from a listener. And this is actually a really nice question and definitely one that's like perfect for Casey and me. So we, we really liked this one. Okay. Thank you for so much for your fantastic podcast. I would love to hear you speak about collaboration between you as tutors with parents. How can parents support their kids with dyslexia to offer daily support of skills and contribute to the learning process. I am specifically thinking about parents of first and second graders who know that their child will be expected to read to learn by third grade. They know that second graders are last year building the reading box officially at school and they want to support their child in getting as far as possible in one year. What would you recommend to parents in this position Thanks again for this fantastic resource. Okay, so we had uh, a few things that we thought, but first of all, yes, let's be respectful of the fact that we know that those grades K to two, one and two, and even into three are such critical years and we have no time to lose. That right. if we can really treat them with urgency, both as educators and as family members and caregivers, yes, I really think we can make wonderful progress with children, but there really is no time to lose. This is not a wait and see type thing going on here. Earlier is better. So with our first and second graders, we had a few suggestions. Casey, do you want to go over one of them and we'll go back and forth with some of them? Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, as therapists and tutors and teachers, when we're working with parents, right, parents really do want to support our work at home. And it really is such an important topic. I think we should also be very mindful of what it is that we're asking parents to do. How can we set parents up for success and make them feel as though they're part of the team in a way that also may honor that they themselves may have dyslexia. If we're remembering that dyslexia tends to run in families, really knowing the family, I think is really important. So there's a couple things that, that I know I do in my practice. I will send home the work that we've done and I try to do it. And usually what I send home is in like a game format so that it, it can be where the parents are playing with the child um, in either like a decodable sentences or reading words or things like that. And then really it's going to depend on what the child's specific needs are for what I would want the parent to reinforce um, at home. But I really try to keep it either set up as a routine. So it's something that the parents know what they're, what they can do at home to practice, to, to build that automaticity piece. That's really going to help set them up for success and transfer what we're doing in our sessions to their work at home. But beyond that, I always recommend access to audiobooks. Those are such an important piece for our students. And I really take the time to talk to parents about why we use audiobooks, right? To dispel any myths or misunderstandings that we might have that it's cheating or it's not real, real reading or things like that, right? So talking to them about the purpose of audiobooks and what the expectations are, you know, are you wanting the child to look at the word as they're listening to the audiobook? Do you want the parents to listen as a family and have conversations about the story elements? So whatever your goals are, but I would say audiobooks is, is a really great tool for families to use. Right. And I do like to recommend that kids who are sitting with an audiobook at home, 
it really is recommended to have a copy of the text in front of them so that mm -hmm. they can be following along and listening. So we will suggest different types of audio pieces of technology out there that are helpful. Learning Ally is one mm -hmm. that always recommend and if book you share. have mm -hmm. in Bookshare. And if you have a person with dyslexia in your home, then you can access this subscription. Well worth it. There are others out there, of course, but that is one that I recommend. And there's an app that I do love and I was discussing with, with Casey and it's the Reading Rainbow app called Skybrary. So think instead of library, it's Skybrary. And this is really there. for your younger students. So when this person wrote to us about first and second graders, the Skybrary app is really highly engaging. It's collections of children's books, both fiction and nonfiction, so informational. And they are all narrated. And because they're from the Reading Rainbow app, they have beautiful narration that is at a pace that isn't too fast for these kids. They can track and follow along. At the very end of some of these more informational books, there are sometimes videos that will accompany topics to build their background knowledge. So important for these kids. And they always include a little fun matching game that my own children love to do. They say, oh, let's do the matchy match. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they will read and listen to the story and uh, then you know, maybe watch the video after. So it is a little bit of a pricey app that you have to renew annually. It is by far, I think, if you have kids in ages K to two, even preschool to two, or even third grade, well worth the money. And we also want to talk about the way when we're read when you, if you're a parent, when you're reading with your child, sitting with them, the, the types of coaching that you might want to have if they miscue a word. So if they maybe you know, are stuck on a word, how to help them through that, how that we don't want to be reliant on pictures. So for instance, I may send home passages where there are no pictures on there, but what they will have gotten is a color copy of showing where their child had highlighted the words that may have followed that skill or pattern so that the parents can see, okay, this is what you were working on with Miss Emily. So now I understand and I can really call attention to that. Oh, this is this was a passage on diagraph SH. Okay. So when I when you see that word, you know, SHIP, that's ship. Okay. So that takes a little bit of coaching with parents. So mm -hmm. when I, whenever I send something home, I, I do try to take the time to have just like a very brief conversation. Yes. This is what you want to do when you're sitting with your child. If they get stuck, then you want to call attention to their letter knowledge. Okay. Well, I, I see S H I P let's break that down. And, you know, by sound, that's just one example. And then as always really, really keep things positive. We want the mm -hmm. experience of reading positive and with lots of praise and encouragement, especially for kids who really are challenged by reading. And please, please don't stop reading to them so that they can still hear uh, proficient reading and develop their vocabulary skills. Yeah, um, I think all those are great. And yeah. as I think that the person maybe who was asking this question is perhaps a, a tutor themselves. And so 
one tip that I have is to kind of think about your scheduling and either build in like one session where you'll end a few minutes early so you can touch base with the parent or build in that time between your sessions or have an email system, some way to communicate to the parent what, you know, how they can support the child at home with the materials that you send. So, yeah, you know what? You may even within, if you are a tutor within Norton Norton Gillingham lesson and you want to even make a very quick video mm-hmm. of, of you with their child reading and how you coach them through so that they can see it in action because, you know, our fam- our families don't aren't sitting in on the session. But they, if they want to just take like a couple, maybe a two or three minute video just to see, that can be really, really helpful. And sometimes I'll end my lesson a few minutes early and the parent will come in and I have the child explain how, what we did or what, what the activity is that I'm sending home or the reading or something like that to kind of Again, pulling executive function skills and language skills. And you know what? It's just a really nice way to sort of synthesize everything that you just did, Casey, with the child, right? For them to be able to communicate to their parent, oh, we worked on, you know, the vowel team AI today, and this is what we're going to be reading. So we sort of provided tips, not only from parent perspective, but also for teachers and tutors such an important connection to make with our families so that we really feel like, you know, this is a team approach and we are all in it for one goal, right? Yes. Our next episode. So this was episode four. Our next episode, we do have a guest, a wonderful guest that you're going to love. So you won't see part two of the older students series just yet, but don't worry. We will be, we'll be having that episode ready probably after that next guest episode. So I would say around episode six. Yes. Okay. So be on the lookout for that. And uh, once again, reach out to us, but check out the website togetherinliteracy.com. All our blog posts are there. They always have really helpful links. So definitely do that. We also want to wrap this, take this time to wrap up to let you know, maybe you're uh, new to Emily and Casey, but if you're looking for resources for your students, Casey and I would just love to take a minute to share where you can go to find some resources that we've created. So Casey, take it away. All right. Yes. So (laughs) Emily and I, we both have stores on Teacher Pay Teacher. And so my shop is under the Dyslexia Classroom. I really focus on resources that align with dyslexia therapy and provide scaffolds for students. Awesome. And as you may or may not know, my store on Teachers Pay Teachers is Emily Gibbons, The Literacy Nest. So I'm very passionate about writing decodable text and a lot of, uh, so you'll find a wide variety of those, but more morphology resources, lots of games. So between the two of us, really, as two dyslexia specialists, we just want to let you know that there are so many wonderful resources out there for you. We know there's a lot to choose from and sift from, but definitely check out our stores and we will have the links to those in this blog post and in the show notes. So just wanted to sort of put in a little plug uh, and toot our own horns a little bit, if you don't mind. (laughs) And we certainly thank you so much for the support and we will see you next time. Bye everybody. Bye.
Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.